the Leaders Who Learn podcast produced by Claremont Lincoln University with your host, Tony DiGiovanni. As president of Claremont Lincoln University, Tony DiGiovanni will interview presidents and CEOs in business and industry to discuss leadership urgently needed today, the collaboration necessary for leading well, and the ways to tap the leader within each of us. Interviews showcase ethical and humble leaders who listen, learn, and build a legacy of gratitude, service, and transparency in their businesses and communities. Now let's hear from our host, Tony DiGiovanni. Welcome to another episode of Leaders Who Learn, presented by Claremont Lincoln University, the university that delivers socially conscious education to students dedicated to making positive change in their worlds. This is one of our podcasts in the President series, and in today's session, we will be digging into sustainability in our world today. In short, how do we preserve our resources for our kids and for the generations to come? I'm Tony DiGiovanni, President of Claremont Lincoln University, and for the first time in our series, I'll be co-hosting today's session with my colleague, Dr. George Mac McCarthy, president of the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy. Mac is a distinguished veteran in the nonprofit and higher education arenas, leading key initiatives for the Ford Foundation and various universities globally. Mac, welcome. This should be fun. Thanks, Tony. And it's great to join you to talk about my second favorite classical element, uh, water after land, of course. And uh, I really do look forward to the conversation and uh, this should be, should be a lot of fun. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely, and glad to have you on with us. Uh, Mac and I are honored today to have the president and CEO of Corolo Engineers, Dr. Balashkrishnan Narayanan. Narayanan for short. Narayanan leads Corolo Engineers, the largest environmental engineering firm in the nation focused solely on water, with over 1,100 employees and 48 offices across the country. Narayanan's educational credentials are impressive, starting with an undergrad degree in civil engineering from the Indian Institute of Technology, a master's in environmental engineering from the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, and a PhD in environmental engineering from the University of California at Berkeley. And most interesting, to me anyway, in today's uh, day and age, Narayanan has worked his entire 30-year career at Corolo. That in itself makes you quite unique. Narayanan. <laughs> Thank you for having me, Tony Mack. Wonderful to be here with you today, and I look forward to an entertaining and enlightening discussion. Narayanan, the largest engineering firm in the nation focused solely on water projects. Tell us about the kinds of projects Corolla was involved with. So at any given time, we probably have around 1,500 to 2,000 projects going on. And these probably, and these kind of span the entire gamut of water. When you look at the water industry, so there are broadly five areas where these projects fall into drinking water treatment, I'll say wastewater treatment, water reuse, which really involves water recycling, infrastructure, which is all the pipelines and all reservoirs that we use to convey water, 
And then finally, water resources management, which looks at the issues of water scarcity, stormwater management, things like that. So the projects we have kind of are classified into these five areas. And then from a client sector standpoint, I'd say the majority of our work is for municipal clients, cities, municipalities, special water districts, and we do a very small amount of work also for the private sector. So that's a quick overview of the projects. And then what ties all these projects together is kind of our vision of being the best water consulting firm in the nation. What's interesting is the way we define best goes a bit beyond engineering. Again, we are only a people company. We don't have any widgets or factories. So in the end, the two most important stakeholders we have are our clients and our staff. And so we define best as being determined by them. So the scope of our work really includes not just engineering, but an equally important emphasis on things that impact the happiness of our staff and our clients. <laughs> and how do your clients tell you your best? Yeah, so that's an interesting, so there's always the metrics and stuff. And the problem when you lead with metrics in a people business is they're the lag indicators. What you really want to lead with is how happy are they with you. And so the reason I like the term happiness is it's inclusive of the end users, what the end users see. So in, our, in the case of our client, for some of them, it might be the quality of our engineering, the ease of operation of our treatment plants, how the end users, the operators feel when they operate the treatment plants we've designed. Equally for a lot of them, it's our investment, emotional investment we are making in their problems and how we solve the problems, the interactions we have with them. So in the end, it's really a very client-specific definition. And our goal by giving that power to the client is allowing them to define best and our job is to meet up with that definition. That is, that is very interesting. And I, I think about the clientele that you work with engineers themselves uh, many times uh, are very precision oriented in, in I'm sure how they define things. So uh, that's gotta be a, a very interesting measurement. Yeah, and I think for some of your students too, I think probably the biggest thing I learned when I joined engineering in my career is, there's this, is how much of it is just the people side of business. So you've always got the technical side that you learn at universities and what universities do a great job is preparing you for all of that. What you very quickly learn when you come into the real world is the truism that's captured in one of those quotes about, hey, people really don't care how much you know until they know you care. <laughs> and so learning all those people skills and connecting with your clients and your staff and your coworkers, that's a big part of our growth. Very interesting getting into your website and talking about the people side of it. It's interesting to see just your care and concern about so many people-oriented uh, issues, you know, from Carollo Cares to uh, the commitment to diversity and, and inclusion. It's something we think about here at Claremont Lincoln University a lot with the programs that we design, with the courses that we offer, and making sure as we think about ethical leadership and inclusion that you know we're very much on the forefront of those kinds of things as well. But I, I was so impressed with the, the various societies that, that you supported in there, the Society of Women Engineers, 
black engineers, uh, the Indian uh, Science and Engineering uh, Societies, uh, all of those just speak to, it sounds like you're, you're living your word when it comes to uh, diversity and inclusion. Well, thank you very much for that observation, Tony. And then again, very much like your institution, I think when you begin to focus on people, you realize very quickly that what matters to them matters to you. And so what we've found with diversity and inclusion is there are tremendous, even business benefits. Our diversity and inclusive workforce has helped us to be more responsive to our clients. It makes us more creative in our solutions and ends up with pathways that make more sense for our clients and for us. And so very importantly, what it's allowed us to also do is reflect the clients and the communities we serve. We, look, we want to look more like our clients and the communities. And internally, what we have found is that it's created a workplace environment where people from all kinds of pathways feel like they belong and they have opportunities for growth. I mean, going back to where I started, <laughs> lends towards getting to a place where you have happier clients, happier people. Of yes. course, the company is going to be happy there. <laughs> That's for sure. Well, you know, let's get to the, you know, one of the key topics uh, on the table today, and that is sustainability. Uh, you have a number of initiatives uh, dealing with sustainability out there. Um, your infrastructure around uh, what you call our water resources is fascinating to the one on the phone who's not an engineer, and that's me. Uh, you have sectors, uh, sector leaders that concentrate on climate change, resilience services, those folks working to mitigate greenhouse gases. It really seems that you're demonstrating Carollo's leadership in this arena. Well, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I think maybe the good, good place to start is just the fact that we are in the water industry gives us an inherent connection to sustainability. As we all know, water is what sustains life on this planet. And the water cycle that all of us learned about in grade school is really nature's way of ensuring a sustainable supply of that water for all of us. And this basic natural water cycle process has worked sustainably for thousands of years. But what's happened is, especially over the last century, population growth and increased industrial activities have created enough of a stress on that cycle that it's no longer sustainable or enough to meet our demands. So if you look at all the things we do as a company or really any other company that's doing water work, all of our efforts are broken up into these five silos. But all those efforts are directed towards one goal of reintroducing some of that sustainability into the water cycle or replacing some of that lost sustainability. So again, from a macro standpoint, that's a very inherent connectivity between the work we do and sustainability. And so it's not a surprise then that we have such a focus on it. What we've done is take that inherent sustainability connectivity and built on it, what externally in the work that we do and internally as an organization and again, there's a very clear business linkage that we've seen. And what helps, of course, is the fact that when you think of sustainability and the three pillars of social, economic, and environmental benefits, all those come to play. And so those benefit our clients and they benefit us. So from a client standpoint, what we have tried to do on our projects is look at ways to make them more sustainable. So for example, 
if we can focus on treatment technologies and processes that have smaller carbon footprints, end results going to be a cleaner treatment plant with lower emissions, lower costs, and lower environmental impacts. All benefits that our clients and the communities can appreciate. Uh, very tangible uh, impacts. Yes. Yeah. 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 And then internally, what we've found is a similar payback. So when we try to reduce our carb internal carbon footprint, for example, by cutting down on our travel and invest in some of these efforts, some of them are internal to the company, some of them are in the communities we live in. The benefits are tremendous there to sure there's the environmental benefits to reducing our carbon footprint. There are also economic benefits of an improved bottom line and tremendous social benefits internally in terms of increased engagement and morale. That's great. So those are all kind of the things we've been doing internally and externally to promote sustainability. Very interesting. So it's interesting to me, Narayan, and, uh, that um, you know, sustainability is really the, what I like to call kind of ecology 3.0 because you know, ecology kind of gets started with uh, a sole focus on um, environmentalism and, and really trying to understand uh, ways that we're harming the environment as opposed to living in kind of, uh, you know, close uh, unity with the environment. Um, and now moving into sustainability with this idea of the three pillars, it adds a level of nuance that, that kind of helps us to understand that we're not separate from the environment, but we're part of the environment. And I think it's really interesting that you kind of embed that in the way you do business as well, because the social aspects of how you do your work and with whom you do your work becomes also a fundamental part of both the sustainability work you're trying to produce outside of the firm, but also the sustainability of the firm. So it's, um, it's an interesting kind of um, uh, uh, a parallel between, you know, how we do our work, how we orient ourselves in the world and, um, and how our work kind of plays out on the ground. That's an excellent point, Mac. The other, as I was thinking about this talk, the other connect point that just struck me was you think of the golden rule that's such a big part of your institution's foundation. And really sustainability in many ways is just expanding that to not just how we treat ourselves and our coworkers and peers and fellow human beings, but also the planet. So all yeah. of it comes together in some ways. The golden rule in action, you're right. It, it's exactly right. So, you know, one of the things that we uh, think about a lot uh, these days is the role that uh, urban settlement plays on human sustainability on the planet. And one of the things, of course, that uh, urban settlement uh, does is it allows us to kind of live in ways that, that reduces the stress that we put on the planet in terms of our carbon footprint and the other demands we make by living in denser settlements. But as you know, uh, water and how we manage water is fundamental to urbanization because we can't even live in cities without uh, you know, fundamental things like uh, water treatment and being able to find ways to deliver uh, safe water to, um, to, our, um, uh, you know, our, to the people. But you know, one of the things that, that interests me is that when, when you think about water and sustainability, you go well beyond just the, the challenges of being able to deliver or treat water and to engage in that, the water cycle you talked about. But you also think about how we manage water influences other things like greenhouse gas emissions. And I'm wondering, what is the connection between water management, water treatment, and greenhouse gas emissions? 
No, excellent question, Mac. I think just from a macro standpoint, the initial point you made, I thought, was the really key one is how important water is when, when we start talking of sustainability, especially in the urban context. Now, urban communities all over the U.S. and probably all over the world are facing very similar water-related challenges. In fact, if you took a survey from some of the city managers, I wouldn't be surprised if water ended up as one of the top five areas of concern. These challenges include increased demands from growing populations, lack of adequate supplies, aging infrastructure, limited funding and resources, and now the impacts of climate change taking all our known understanding of the science and completely turning it around, introducing so much variability in all of this. So that's where we start. And so then when you look at the solution, how do we solve that problem? And I think what we need to move to is uh, we need a different approach from the one we've been using in the past. So in the past, everything related to water, we've broken it up into silos. We've got drinking water treatment, wastewater treatment, stormwater management. Now what we are moving to is realizing that all these are connected and we need to look at water holistically. And when you start looking at that is when you begin to see the connectivity between all of these different processes and greenhouse gases, global warming, all of those. So for, as an example, one of the biggest energy users in most of the most of our states is related to water. It's the cost, it's the energy related to pumping large volumes of water from let's say Northern California to Southern California, the amount of energy that we use in treatment plants. And equally important, the amount of energy that households use in both the drinking water and wastewater systems. So there's a connectivity here with all of those things is we climate change creates all of a lot of these problems we are talking about on the water side. And then our use of water and the way we use water contributes to greenhouse gases and further completes closes that loop of climate change. Wow. So it's a, an integrated system and, and a complex system at that. So it's a, it's an interesting way that we, um, we kind of, figure out how those uh, connections work. And we try to look to um, find the, le the leverage points where we can to kind of make a difference. It's, uh, it's, it's really interesting. One of the things about the way you work in, in Carollo um, that really interests me is, is not in what you produce through the work, but how you actually produce the solutions. And on the website, I was looking at, at your, your uh, innovation called CAMP, which is a, a problem solving method for bringing new stakeholders in and, and finding innovative solutions to some of these vexing challenges that we face in all the different aspects of water and water management. And um, one of the things that occurred to me is that uh, sometimes if we look at a solution from a narrow point of view, we might not, or a challenge from a narrow point of view, we not, might not find kind of a, a local solution, but sometimes expanding the playing field and bringing in new stakeholders makes those kinds of solutions possible. And uh, I was thinking about uh, New York City, where New York City was faced with this prospect of having to build a $10 billion uh, uh, plant to filter its water. It's one of the largest unfiltered water systems in the world. And um, rather than invest the $10 billion, they actually went and started to ask the fundamental questions about what else could we do that would help us to deliver fresh, clean water to our cities? 
to our city uh, without building a $10 billion filtration plant. And they realized that they could actually make a big, uh, broader set of investments in the watershed, particularly in the rural communities surrounding New York, that would uh, make it possible for them to uh, you know, clean up the watershed, improve wastewater systems in rural communities, and make sure that the water that they're getting is actually uh, pure enough and of good quality to bring straight to the faucets. And I'm wondering, in your work in camp and others, have, have you found that these kinds of different approaches to problem solving are also kind of fundamental to understanding how we get to sustainability? Because it's not just us in these narrow little bubbles that, that, that kind of take on the challenge, but it's us in conversation with new stakeholders and trying to find new ways to kind of break down a problem. Absolutely, Max. So that was an excellent example that you gave of New York and it kind of illustrates this issue. So when you think of sustainability and what are we trying to do in the end, it's the planet we're trying to protect. So do we believe, for example, with greenhouse gas emissions that somehow they're only impacting our city or just the area above the treatment plant? No way. And so the key, of course, is you can't draw a control volume around the whole planet, but the larger that control volume is, especially when you're dealing with an issue like water, because really, again, water really doesn't know any boundaries. You may think that even the groundwater below a city is connected to groundwater in other areas. So you hit on the point, which is the first part of the problem is just defining your control volume or your boundary in such a way that you can bring in all the stakeholders that are impacted, not just the ones in your immediate locality. So that's the first step in the process is just making sure you identify all the stakeholders. The second element, and this is where the camp connectivity, that's how that came up, was recognizing that probably the biggest challenge is defining the problem. What is the problem? So in the example you brought up, if you define the problem as, hey, we want to build a filter plant, then your energy is now focused on building the best filter plant possible. Whereas if you define the problem more broadly as a water resources issue, then you open up the potential for other solutions. And then the third final element is just the process of arriving at that solution. And so the camp really was, came out of our recognition that, look, in the end, the technical solution is probably just a very small element of the final success of the, of the project. How do you define success? Sure, technical element is a part of, big part of it, but equally important is that all those stakeholders you just finished identifying feel that they've come out with something that works for them. And I promise you very little of that feeling is linked to the technical element of the solution. It's them being heard, them us hearing their specific issues, them having a chance to input ideas and all of that is what kind of is tied up in the camp process. So one final point, I think all these issues that you're talking about and you brought up are codified now in the water industry through this term, one water. And that's the terminology we've come up with, recognizing that, for example, if you're the city of LA, you can't just look at your wastewater problems independent of your water problems or your water reuse issues or stormwater management. And that's the process that the water industry has now started to try and increase this control volume or the boundary that we draw around these different issues to make sure that we then begin to get different stakeholders inside the tent 
and to have them be a part of the process. Yeah, that, that's, that's interesting. It's also inspiring to think that there's, there's an element of faith there that says that if we bring in these new uh, stakeholders, we actually believe that a, a different solution is possible. And part of that is, you know, the proof is in the pudding. You, you actually go through the process and, and find a new solution. And part of it is convincing others that these solutions are out there and possible if they can kind of find a way to collectively kind of bring their energies and their intellect to bear on the problem. So it's, um, it's really quite interesting. And so just um, one more question, because one of the things that, that, that uh, occurs to me when we talk about new stakeholders kind of engaging in, in, the, in this, the process of you know, attaining sustainability, um, one of the, the last stakeholders to the game, um, but one of the most important stakeholders to have on board is the private sector. And one of the things about this, you know, what I call you know, ecology 3.0 is that it starts with the environmental movement. And this is mostly scientists, environmentalists, others who, um, who care about the environment and the damage we're doing to it. But in the end, we, then we needed policymakers to start to build rules and ways to govern things. But the most important player that it was the last to the table was the, the private sector. And we absolutely needed the private sector because so much economic activity goes on at the behest of the private sector, but it's also so much innovation is generated from the private sector. And I'm wondering within your firm, was it a conscious decision made that you were just gonna jump into this sustainability space or did, you just, did it just kind of present itself as kind of um, you know, an ecological opportunity as you started to evolve through the way the company was seeing its challenges and its markets and the, the problems it was being presented with. So I'll start off. Thank you. I'll start off by not wanting to saying I don't want to pat ourselves on the back too much because there's a lot <laughs> we still need to be doing. And then also acknowledging, as I said earlier, there is an inherent connectivity between water and sustainability that makes our job a lot easier than I'll say some other companies that might be, for example, in the manufacturing business. And the last element, again, that makes our job a bit easier is almost by definition, since we're in the environmental sector, a lot of the staff and the folks that come to join Kirovo come in with an environmental sensitivity that we almost select for those kind of folks. And all of you take all of that on one side, and then you take our mission statement of wanting to be the best firm and the comments are made about how we let our clients and staff define best it's pretty easy to see why sustainability makes sense for us, not just the environmental benefits, we've actually seen improvements to our bottom line. So as you, this whole process of trying to make your organization more carbon neutral or reducing your carbon footprint comes with economic benefits. They might take some time for you to realize, but they are there. But probably the biggest benefit and driver we've seen is the internal social impact of the impact it's had on morale, staff morale, staff engagement. So even with my comments I made about us selecting for a certain kind of staff, I do believe this is gonna be one of the biggest motivators for a lot more engagement from the private sector on the sustainability issue. If you think of the next generation of workforce that's coming in, I, I'll tell you with very clearly, they are a lot more socially engaged and aware than, to my shame, I can say, than I was when I entered the workforce. 
And I think just being sensitive to the requirements of that workforce are going to drive a lot of private sector companies to invest in sustainability. And it's, as you pointed out, it's just an inertial inertia that they have, initial inertia that they have to overcome because once they get into it, they'll very quickly realize all these benefits. And that push, I think, is going to come from their own staff and their own workforce, wanting to be part of a company that's more environmentally conscious. Ryan, then it, it's pretty straightforward in thinking about your engineering focus that you have uh, individuals that come into your workforce or, or would like to come into your workforce <coughs> with engineering backgrounds and with an environmental bent. But how do you see overall, you know, excluding engineering, but, but in all of the other sectors out there, how do you see job prospects when you think about sustainability leadership? This is a, a, an area that Claremont Lincoln a university just entered into with its master's in sustainability leadership. And we're seeing lots of interest about the, about the degree, but lots of questions about where students will take this uh, in the future. Can you comment on that? No, I thank you for that opportunity, Tony, because this is something I do believe in that it's a lot more than just engineering. Now it's, as Carolo, we are an engineering company, so that's where our focus is. But if you just look at this general concept of sustainability, I do believe it's going to get more attention in all spheres of our lives and activities. So if you just look at some of these issues that are raging on around us, impacts of the pandemic, the social unrest we are seeing, the effects of climate change, it's really not too much of a stretch, at least not for me, to arrive at the conclusion that at least in some part, all of these are the results of unsustainable, I'll say social or physical practices and protocols that we've been consciously or unconsciously been pursuing. And in some ways, if you want to look at these stresses and pains we are currently feeling, it represents in some ways a pushback from either our society or on a larger scale in case of climate change from the planet. So if you start with that premise, again, it's not too much of a stretch to then suggests that the way out of this current situation and these problems is to move to a more sustainable framework of decision-making and practice beyond just engineering in all spheres of our life that looks at social, environmental, and economic benefits, not just for our generation, but for the generations that are going to come after us. And that's where I think programs like the ones you've started that have an interdisciplinary approach to sustainability are so important because I do think the core issue expands well beyond engineering, really covers, touches every aspect of, I'll say, human endeavor and activity. No, that's, that's very helpful. Uh, appreciate, appreciate your comments there. Well, I couldn't um, end this uh, session without asking you about ethical leadership at Carollo Engineers. Um, how do you think about uh, ethical leadership for yourself as a leader, for your management team, but literally for, you have so many professionals among your 1,100 uh, employees or so. Is it assumed? Is it taught? Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I don't think we've, we, we've specifically used this 
the terminology of ethical leadership, but when I think of everything that would go into a definition of ethical leadership, there's no question in my mind that that's what we practice at Kirolo. So at Kirolo, it's leadership has always been founded on a set of core ethics and values and directed by respect for the dignity of everyone within the company. And so one of the things we say is, look, leadership at Kirolo is not defined by your position on the org chart. That just defines your management responsibility. Leadership is an earned right, and you earn that right by really winning the minds and hearts of those that you seek to lead. And inherent, I think, in that concept of winning minds and hearts is the assumption of a higher ethical and moral standard that would command the respect and loyalty of your co-workers. So we have a formalized leadership program that talks about the key principles and behaviors, and there are 10 of them that we've kind of distilled over our 87-year evolution as a company. But when I think of ethical leadership, sure, the formal program is an element of it. But I think probably the bigger part of it is just the company culture. Because I think all these formal programs, they do have a role. But in themselves, I, do not, I don't think they would do as good a job if they weren't supported by a grassroots, bottom-up kind of culture that supported ethics and just ethical behavior. And so in our case, one of the things we lean to is our culture where it's based on a significant amount of emphasis on decency and niceness. And while we may not again specifically talk of ethics, this, in our minds, it is really having that golden rule, implementing it, treat others with decency and niceness. And this cultural framework, I do think, adds it becomes a great support structure for the formal leadership program because it's a very important selection and alignment to what we've found over our decades of operation is this culture long-term selects for like-minded people. People join us because they like this culture. Sometimes we have people that don't fit in and they very quickly realize it and move on. So yes. we're going to concentrate for this group of like-minded people. That becomes also a very strong alignment to. So when you think of ethical leadership, it's easy to sometimes say, hey, I'm, I am an ethical leader. I always do the right thing. But sometimes maybe defining the right thing is not easy. But that's where the culture can help. And so in our case, one of the things we talk about is the litmus test is very easy. It's a cultural one. If you're debating an action and if it's not something you can explain to your coworkers and peers without causing them discomfort or them raising the eyebrows, probably not the right course of action. Awesome. Well, one of the things I'll take uh, out of that out of that statement is leadership is an earned right. I, I think that's a just a wonderful capsule. Uh, we can all be managers, uh, but to be leaders, uh, we really have to earn that uh, distinction. Uh, Narayanan, this has been an enlightening discussion. Um, we've really appreciated your taking the time to to talk to us uh, and to our listeners. Feel free to learn more about Carollo Engineers and their sustainable initiatives that they lead at uh, www.carollo.com. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Leaders Who Learn podcast president series with your host, president of Claremont Lincoln University, Tony Di Giovanni.